My name is Adam Andrews. I'm the director of the Center for Literary Education, Center for Lit, as it's commonly known. And I'm glad to be with you this morning. Happy to be able to talk about building the perfect reading list. As I had occasion to mention earlier this weekend, I think because you are here at a lecture with this title that I know something about you. I think I know one of the things you're after. And that is a list. I bet that lots of you came hoping that I would give you the perfect reading list. And you didn't notice the first word on the slide. <laughs> Building the perfect reading list. What I'd like to do is offer some advice, some continued advice for those of you who have heard me speak before on the subject. Some continued advice for putting together your own reading list and using it effectively. And I've talked a lot of, in other places about the various implications of my general idea on the subject, which is that the reading list is just not all that important. I don't think it's all that important because the education that we're trying to give our children doesn't come from a reading list. So I want to start today within this subject by issuing a huge, long disclaimer. And that disclaimer is that if you're after a real education for your kids, I know you are. That's why you're here. That's why you give up your time and money and energy to spend this weekend at a convention and the rest of the year in your basement. <laughs> I know you're after a great education for your kids. And I want to tell you before we even start in on the practical stuff, I don't think that education comes from a book list. I think you can have that education in a single conversation with your students about any subject in the curriculum or outside the curriculum. And we probably ought to start with a quick discussion of what is an education anyway. If I'm going to give you tips on putting a reading list together, we should know where that reading list stands in the big picture of an education. So the real question is, is an education what you know? Are those equal things? I am educated means I know or is an education knowledge of what you don't know? I would argue that it's the latter. I would argue that the truly educated man is quick to say, I don't understand. And he knows from his own experience the fact that he is not omniscient. It seems like in education today, and we all, homeschoolers alike, fall into this trap of understanding education as a campaign against ignorance, right? An education is a, is a statement against ignorance. I have a great education, which means to some degree, I am not as ignorant as I was. I know things that I didn't used to know. Education really is the pursuit of mastery, right? A mathematician, an educated mathematician is the master of a domain of knowledge, an engineer is the master of a domain of knowledge. Who are the most respected professionals in our society? Who are they? Who do you trust even if you don't know him? Your doctor. I know nothing about my doctor. I have no idea what kind of a guy he is. But if he tells me something, it's the truth. I believe him. I respect him. Why? Because he's the master of a domain of knowledge. Our society is built on this philosophy of education. The most educated man in my life is my doctor. Why do I consider him educated? Because he knows a ton. 
But who was the wisest man who ever lived and how much school did he have? At the college I went to, people often said that Socrates was the wisest man who ever lived. Socrates was illiterate. Socrates' main statement about the world of knowledge and the world of wisdom is, I don't know. I have no idea. Now, he was, that was a rhetorical device on Socrates' part. Right? He knew a lot, but not from books, not from book lists, certainly. And his philosophical approach to education was to presume not to know. In the Christian world, this has a direct analog in the story of Job. Anybody know the story of Job? Do you know the point of the story of Job? Did you know that Job is a treatise on education? I bet you didn't ever think about that before. Job is a treatise on education. Because at the beginning of the story of Job, Job knows everything there is to know about relating to God. He knows all of God's levers and just how to pull them. He makes these little sacrifices here. He does his little kids here. He's a righteous man in all these different ways. And then for 40 chapters, he gets beat up by God and everyone else until at the end he says a really telling thing. He says, behold, when he's standing face to face with God, after he has accused God of doing him wrong and defended himself to his three friends who come to comfort him in the little ash pile where he's sitting, remember? He says this amazing thing after God confronts him. He says, behold, I've been speaking about something I know nothing about. And so I clap my hand over my mouth and promise not to talk anymore. That's essentially what Job says at the end. Learning his lesson. And what is the lesson that Job learns? What does he know at the end of the story? He knows this. There's a God in heaven, and it's not me. I thought I was God. I thought I was omniscient. I thought I knew all there was to know. And it turns out I knew nothing. Oh, I get it. And this is an education. Job was an educated man for that reason. He knew what he didn't know. He had humility, finally, in his mind as well as in his heart. That's what I want my kids to have. That's the kind of education I want to pass on to the little Andrewses running around my house. Yes, you can be the master of this field of mathematics. And yes, we can learn literary analysis. And yes, you can get a high score on your SAT and go to a great college and learn a ton. But that's not an education. An education is remembering who is the creator and who is the creature. And what kind of finitude and limitations are involved in creaturehood. And one of those limitations is you're not ever going to know everything. You're not ever going to get to the end of the book list. The book list is longer than you. Learn it. Embrace it. The kind of arrogance that goes with, I can finish the book list, is such a liability. It's a huge handicap. So put not a long book list in front of your kids. Put the appropriate size book list filled with books, a discussion of which you can use to confront your children with their limitations. To confront your children with the fact that they are finite creatures and that omniscience is not one of their options. So how many books should be on the book list? However many you pick. Which book should be on the book list? Books that can allow this conversation to happen. This conversation about who is God and who is the creature. About the limitations of creaturehood. About you don't know everything. Which books can have that conversation? 
Which books do we use to bring that conversation about? Well, they have to be books that your students can understand, right? They have to be books that are not beyond their reading level. Or to put a, more, a finer point on it, they have to be books that aren't beyond their relating level. Because sometimes those are two different things, aren't they? The reading level that we can go at and get to the end of sentences and the end of paragraphs and maybe fill in the blanks and a little exercise at the end. And the books that we can relate to and understand and embrace and take into our hearts. Those are the only kind of books worth reading. Because if all you're doing is running your eyes over the page and filling in comprehension questions at the end, you're kind of spinning your wheels. The kind of education that I'm after never happens in that context. It only happens in the context of a book you can relate to, a book that you can imbibe, that you can eat, as it were, and have it go down into the inner parts. And so, as you go about building the perfect reading list, I hope that you will include some titles that are below the reading level of your students, down there at the relatable level, at the level where we can both talk about them with ease because they're not that difficult to understand. You know what will happen if you fill your early book list with books like that? Pretty soon, the definition of a book that's easy for me to understand and I can relate to will broaden to include all the necessary books. If your students have enough practice relating to easy books, they will learn how to relate to books in general. And it won't be necessary to push them on beyond where they're comfortable and have them read Dickens and Shakespeare before it's time. All of this is a long way to say, I think children's books should be on your book list. Picture books, even, written by masters of that genre. Because those books are just as full of the educational opportunities we're after as Shakespeare and Dickens. Now, you might not believe me about that. You might need some convincing that A Bargain for Francis, like the, one, like the uh, book I read yesterday, is fruitful of philosophical conversation. But I believe it with all my heart and I want to try again to convince you of it today. To convince you of my main point, which is building the perfect reading list involves understanding and using children's stories effectively. Now, before we get into this topic for today, I just want to say that if you are interested in my suggestions for adult-level reading, high school-level reading, junior high-level reading that pushes the reading level into new territories. I have tons of resources on that subject and can make a million suggestions of when and where and why and how to read the Iliad and the Odyssey and to read the advanced fiction of C.S. Lewis or Charles Dickens or Mark Twain. But I want to talk about principles a little bit more today. I want to read you another children's story to see if we can come to an agreement that this project is worth trying. That books which are going to set you free as a teacher and make you go, oh, today's lesson is a children's story. I think I can do this. I think I can handle today's lesson. This is not a burden to me. This is not one more thing I've got to do today that's really beyond my comfort zone. I actually feel good about this. I want to see if I can convince you that that is an okay place to be. That being there in your lit class is not a failure. I only did things I was comfortable with. We didn't push the envelope. We're failing. I don't want you to ever think that because nothing could be further from the truth. Let me see if I can convince you by discussing the biggest bear 
by Lind Ward. 1953 Caldecott Award medal winner. Great charcoal illustrations, you're gonna love it. I wanna talk about this book after we read it to see if the eternal themes present in all great literature are actually present in this one too. And do a little demonstration of a Socratic discussion to see where, if we can arrive there together, okay? But let's enjoy the story first. The Biggest Bear by Lind Ward. Johnny Orchard lived on the farm farthest up the valley and closest to the woods. On the hill behind the barn, Johnny's grandfather had planted a few apple trees. These were the only apple trees in the valley, and they were known as Orchard's Orchard. Whenever Johnny went down the road to the store for a piece of maple sugar or something, he always felt humiliated. The other barns in the valley usually had bearskin nailed up to dry, but never Johnny's barn. Every fall for three years, Mr. McLean had come in with a bear. And one evening, Mr. Pennell had just stepped out to the edge of his nearest field and shot three in a row as they came heading for the tall timber. It is true that Johnny's grandfather had met a bear once when he was on the way back from picking apples. But he had gone in one direction while the bear had gone in another. When Johnny asked him why, his grandfather had said, <laughs> Better a bear in the orchard than an orchard in the bear. <laughs> it was very humiliating. Johnny said, If I ever see a bear, I'll shoot him so fast he won't know what hit him, and we'll have the biggest bear skin in the whole valley. After he had gone quite a way into the woods, he came to a place where there was a big stump, and something seemed to be moving in the bushes behind it. It was a bear, all right. He seemed hungry, so Johnny gave him a piece of maple sugar. On the way home, the bear ate all the maple sugar Johnny had in his pocket. Johnny's mother and father were a little surprised to see that Johnny had really brought a bear back with him. Johnny's grandfather said, <coughs> I suppose you know what a bear likes to eat. The bear liked the milk that was meant for the calves. He liked the mash, meant for the chickens. He liked the apples in the orchard. He liked pancakes on Sunday morning. And most especially, he liked the maple sugar Johnny brought him from the store. There was hardly anything he didn't like. And Johnny's mother got pretty upset when he started looking for things on the kitchen shelves. In the fall, Mr. McCarroll got pretty upset when the bear spent a night in his cornfield. In the winter, he had a wonderful time with the bacons and hams in the Pennell's smokehouse. 
It was bad enough that he emptied all the sap buckets when the McLeans were tapping their maple trees in the spring. But it was worse later when he got in the McLean's shed and drank up most of their maple syrup. He was always eating, it seemed, and he grew pretty fast and got pretty big. Finally, Mr. McLean started talking to Mr. Pennell. They both went to see Mr. McCarroll. Then they all came to see Johnny and his father. What they had to say about Johnny's bear was plenty. He was a trial and a tribulation to the whole valley. After the neighbors had left, Johnny's father explained to Johnny that the bear would have to go back to the woods. So, the next morning, Johnny started out. They walked for miles due west on an old lumber road way past Baldwin's Hill to an old clearing that was overgrown with raspberries. Johnny explained to the bear that the time had come for him to go and live in the woods like other bears. He gave the bear a last hug and started the long walk home. While he was doing the chores next morning, Johnny saw that the bear hadn't stayed in the woods very long. So Johnny started out again, due east this time, to the Blueberry Bluff, way past Watson's Hill. And when Johnny left him, the bear was eating blueberries very happily. But two days later, he was back again. This time, Johnny took him due south and got a boat and rowed two miles out in the lake and left him on Gull's Island, which is a pretty big island. But the next morning, there he was, not even very wet. Johnny and his father talked it over, and they decided there was only one thing to do. Johnny said he would do it. They didn't really have to go very far, but Johnny somehow kept on walking. They went north this time. There were no roads here, and it was a part of the woods where Johnny had never been before. At last, they stopped. Johnny seemed to have a hard time getting a bullet in the gun. While he was working with it, the bear seemed to get a whiff of something. Without warning, he took off through the woods. Johnny went with him. They went through the woods so fast that Johnny lost his gun, but he held on to the rope. They seemed to be heading for a sort of little log house. They went through the doorway pretty fast, and something came down with a bang, and they were prisoners. When Johnny looked around, he saw the bear was happily chewing on a big lump of maple sugar that had been put in the trap for bait. Pretty soon some men came. They were a little surprised to see Johnny in there. They explained to Johnny that they were getting animals for the zoo in the city. They were delighted with Johnny's bear. He was much bigger 
than they had ever hoped for. He'll have a fine place to live and all he wants to eat, the men told Johnny. And you can come and see him whenever you want to. And I'll always bring him maple sugar, said Johnny. The end. Deep? Kids book? Which? Why don't we talk about this book for a little bit? And let's see if a book that is as short and as accessible as a Caldecott Medal winner from 1953 can support a discussion of eternal themes, a discussion of the type that I'm looking for when I want to give a real education to my students. And I want to start doing that by just walking through the plot for just a minute or two. Let's talk about the exposition of this story. The details that we learn about the world the story happens in from the early pages of the story. So we would be filling in a story chart if we had one on the board in the bottom left corner where it says exposition. What do you learn about this story in the early pages? Who's it about? It's about Johnny and a bear, right? Let's talk about Johnny and his world in a little for a minute. We actually learn a few things in the exposition, don't we? About Johnny's world. What kind of world is it? Somebody said a small world? Oh, a rural world. Okay, it's a rural world made up of farmers. And in that rural world, Johnny has a desire and a wish, doesn't he? What is it? He wants to shoot a bear. So we could say in this exposition part, Johnny, who lives in a rural area among farmers, wants to shoot a bear. Let me jump off of our plot chart and start talking about setting for just a minute. Let me ask you a couple of questions about the setting of this story. We've already said that it's a rural area where Johnny lives, right? What kind of people make up this world? Somebody said mountain men. Ah, that's a good phrase. What kind of people are mountain men? Rugged. Hardy. Outdoorsy. They carry guns. What does carrying guns tell us about their personalities and their worldviews and their outlooks? They're manly men. Exactly right. They shave once a week whether they need it or not. They wear flannel shirts and drive pickup trucks. I actually live in rural, rural northeast Washington among folks like this. They're wonderful people, mountain, mountain men, manly men. But manly men is probably a pretty good description of Mr. McLean and Mr. Pennell and Mr. McCarroll, right? When they see a problem, what do these manly men tend to do? They shoot it. <laughs> they solve it, right? Self-reliant, maybe. Maybe macho a little bit, you know? Bear comes to the edge of my field, I'm going to shoot him. Two in a row. Put him on my shoulders and carry him back to camp, right? I once shot a deer a couple of years ago in a, on a hunting trip, and I was all by myself. And I got up to the deer, and there he was, ready to be trucked back to camp and put in my freezer. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm alone. What do I do now? 
and I haven't shot many deer in my life. This was a fairly new experience. I thought I had this mental picture of Davy Crockett <laughs> with a deer over his shoulders. You've seen the picture, right? I thought, well, I'll just hike this buddy up and take him back to camp. I couldn't get his head off the ground. <laughs> Those suckers are heavy. But if I had been a manly man like Johnny Orchard's neighbors, I probably would have handled it. Do you think it's important for the author's point in this story that the story is set among this kind of folks? Self-reliant, rugged, manly men? At what time of life for the main character is this story set? What point in his life is he at? Yeah, he's at a, a coming of age point in his life, isn't he? He's a young boy, a child, but boy, oh boy, you can tell he's right on the cusp of young manhood, isn't he? Do you think that's a significant detail in this story? Let me ask you this question about the main character. What does Johnny want most? Don't answer yet. This is a critical question that you can ask of any book you're reading, and it's productive of a great discussion usually. Imagine that you are your youngest student right now. Imagine that you are kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade. What might you answer to that question? What does Johnny want? A bear skin up on the side of his barn, right? Of course he does. And in a sense, this story is all about him trying to get a bear skin, right? But now, yeah, imagine that you're a little older. And then you can look past the bearskin and you take into account the setting of the story that we've just talked about very briefly among manly men and you take into account the point in, in little Johnny's life in which the story happens the cusp of young manhood what else does Johnny want besides a bearskin say that again he wants to belong in this community of manly men right he wants to be a man, doesn't he? What kind of man? A manly man. He wants to be a macho man. He wishes he could shave so that he could not shave. Right? That's what Johnny wants. Let's talk about the plot again, now that we've got a little idea of what the main character is after. Let's go into the rising action section of the plot. At what point does exposition, where the author's just kind of laying out the background and getting you set for this story, at what point does exposition change to rising action? At what point does the conflict enter and the tension start to increase? It was a bear, all right. Johnny says, if I ever see a bear, I'll shoot him so fast it won't know what hit him. And there's a bear. And now we have a conflict. What do you expect Johnny to do? Shoot him, right? Ah, oh, but that's not what happens. He doesn't shoot him. And so now we have a longer story that involves Johnny and the bear living together for a while. Right? Let's divide that part of the story up into little episodes. Okay, let's divide it up into chunks so we can see the story developing piece by piece by piece. When Johnny meets the bear in the woods, what's the first episode that happens after that? How would you label it? The maple sugar episode, okay? Johnny brings the bear home with maple sugar, right? And then what happens at home? Little, 
the bear takes over the house. The bear becomes part of the family. We have the little family episode, right? The bear learns to eat from everywhere. And he eats pancakes on Sunday morning, and he becomes, through the pictures you can tell, the bear just becomes part of the family. Johnny and the bear become friends. Then what? The bear becomes a nuisance. Of course. You could see that coming if you have any experience with animals at all, even non-bear animals. The bear becomes a nuisance. That's the next episode. He gets in the cornfield. He gets in the smokehouse. He gets in the syrup shed. Until finally, what's the next episode? He becomes a nuisance to the neighbors and they confront him. So we have that little confrontation, right? The neighbors come to Johnny's house and say, do something about the bear. Is tension rising in your mind as you read at this point? You know how this is going to go, right? This can't actually happen. That's why people and wild animals don't generally live together. Because this is how it goes. What's the next episode after that confrontation? Louder? No, first of all, before that even, there's, this, there's this, uh, a little episode where Johnny tries to solve the problem by taking the bear away, relocating, right? The relocation episode. He goes north, he goes south, he goes west, he goes east to Watson's Hill and Blueberry Hill and Gulls Island. And this project is a failure because the bear won't stay gone. And now tension is quite high, isn't it? Now you realize, oh no, I think there might have to be death in this story for the problem to get resolved. What's the next episode? The little father-son talk with the hand on the shoulder and the head down. Great picture, wasn't it? Yeah, it's a turning point in the story, isn't it? By the way, I think that picture is a real turning point in the story because of the text on that page which said, Father said there was only one thing to do. Johnny said he would do it. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But as you're going through the rising action part of a story, at some point you've got to say, the next detail that happens is the climactic moment. And you have to look for candidates as you read. Could this be the climactic moment? I wonder if this little father-son talk here with the gun is a climactic moment in the story. In order to answer that question effectively, though, you must know which conflict you're tracking. And so let's go back a minute and talk about the conflicts that are driving this story forward. We mentioned already the idea that Johnny, the main character, wants a couple of different things. He wants a bear skin, and he wants to belong to this group of manly men, and he wants to be a man. What kind of conflicts are these? What's the Johnny wants a bear skin conflict? What category of conflict is that? A man versus nature conflict. The bear that he wants is out there in the woods alive and he wants it dead. Man versus nature. What about the one where Johnny wants to belong to a world of manly men? A man versus society conflict. Of course. There's an element here in this story of the society that Johnny lives in having a certain code. A certain code of manliness that Johnny must follow in order to belong. At least in Johnny's head that exists, right? How can we tell? How do we know that Johnny sees that code out there and knows that he doesn't yet follow it? 
because everybody else's barn has a bearskin, but never Johnny's barn. So he knows there's something missing in his repertoire, in his resume. His manly resume doesn't have a line on it that you've got to have, which is bearskin on the barn. So this is a man versus society conflict too, isn't it? Any other conflicts going on? Any other categories of conflict? Sorry? Outer, inner, good. There's a man versus himself conflict. Yeah, exactly right. There's a conflict inside Johnny's mind and heart. Over what question? What's, what? Am I a man? What is a man? How do I get to be a man? How can I grow up? Wow. Pretty deep story so far. Three different categories of conflict, all of which, by the way, are major themes in world literature. Written at any level. Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Dickens, Shakespeare, any of the great authors of the great classics deal with these themes. Major difference, their books are hard. This book is easy. Let's talk a little bit more about this conflict by talking about the main character for just a minute. Does Johnny undergo any significant changes as this story takes place? Does his outlook on the world seem to change to you? That's a good question to ask your students before you then get a little bit more specific and ask this follow-up question. Describe Johnny's priority list at the beginning of the story and then see if you would describe it differently at various other points in the story. What's Johnny's main emotional state on the first page of this story? Do you remember? He's embarrassed. The word the author uses is humiliated. Johnny, in the first chapter of this story, is humiliated. Can you tell me why? He doesn't have a bare skin, but it's actually more specific than that. His family are not the bear hunting kind. When a bear gets in the orchard's orchard, the orchards run. They don't shoot the bear. They run away, tossing witty little jokes back over their shoulders. Better a bear in the orchard than an orchard in the bear. I'm out of here. It was very humiliating, the author says. So, Johnny wants to be a manly man like the McCarrolls and the Pennells and the other guys, and instead, he's an orchard. He's an apple grower, and it's humiliating. Let me ask you a question. If the word humiliated can describe you, who are you thinking about? Can you ever be humiliated for someone else's sake? I mean, feel humiliated. You can be humiliated. You can be humbled for someone else's sake. But can you ever feel humiliated and embarrassed on account of someone else? I submit that you cannot. If you are humiliated, you are self-obsessed at that moment. You are only thinking about how you look to the world. So, no matter how much we love Johnny, we've got to say at the beginning of the story, he's a pretty self-obsessed young man. His concern is for his own things almost exclusively. Now, let me ask you the same question at a point a little further down the line, a little further on in the story. At the point when the neighbors come to the orchard's house and they say, this bear is a trial and a tribulation to the whole valley. 
What did Johnny's actions after that show about his perspective? What does he do at that point? Remember? He starts to take the bear off into various different directions in order to do what? Find a safe place for the bear. For whose sake? For the neighbor's sake and for the bear's sake because the neighbors want to get rid of the bear. And Johnny probably suspects that they want to do it via violence. And so he's willing to go to some inconvenience to protect his pet. He's willing to go west and south and get in a boat and do all that work for his friend. Now, granted, it's more of a pet than a friend, maybe even more of a possession than a friend, but still, can you see his gaze shifting from himself ever so slightly outward? He's willing now to go to some length to fix a problem, to go to his own hurt to a minute degree to fix the problem in his neighborhood. What about when his father puts his hand on his shoulder and says there's only one thing to be done and Johnny said he would do it? Who's he thinking about now? The neighborhood. He realizes that there's nothing to be done but to shoot his own bear. And does he say, Dad, you do it. I can't bear it. Not at all. He says, I'll do it. What is it that he will do? What is he volunteering to do? Yes, he's volunteering to shoot the bear, but what's the issue? What is he volunteering to do, actually? Solve the problem by sacrificing of himself. He's actually willing to lay down his own things altogether and never get them back for the sake of his neighbors. Just like Abraham on the mountain with Isaac. Yeah, exactly. So how has Johnny changed? Has Johnny changed over the course of the story? His main priorities in life have developed at all? Oh, they sure have. He goes from being a completely self-absorbed, self-obsessed, immature boy to being what? Did someone say manly man? Do you think Johnny would have answered the question, what is a man, differently at the end of the story than at the beginning? Sure would have. At the beginning of the story, he would have said something like, a man is a guy with whiskers who has a bearskin on his barn. And at the end, you know, maybe Johnny didn't realize what had happened, but we readers are supposed to realize what has happened. He's come into a brand new understanding of manhood. Yeah? What is a man? What makes a manly man in the t- pages of this story? The ability and the willingness to lay down your life for your friends. Right? That's the kind of man that Johnny is becoming. The man that looks at his people and, said, and says, if it's up to me, you will be well and I will make it happen. Though I go to my own hurt, though I lay down my own life, I will take care of you. Wow. Johnny's going to be a good man at some point in the future. What do you think the major theme of this story is then, if we're based on this discussion? What did the author go to paper and say, I want to talk about X? X. 
Could you say something as simple as manhood? Coming of age? What is a good man? Do you suppose you could read this story with kids that are at the place that Johnny's at and have a fruitful discussion about what it means to be a man? Without too much trouble. Can you think of a higher goal for a lesson in school? Is there anything more important you'd rather do with your morning than teach your 12-year-old son what it means to be a good man? Do you suppose that a 12-year-old son who's actually reading this story, or an 18-year-old son for that matter, or your husband, who's actually reading this story and whose eyes are open to the actual theme of it, might look inside his own heart and say, I think I see some self-obsession and self-centeredness and selfishness down there, just like Johnny has. I think there's a difference between me right this minute and Johnny at the end of this story. You think it's possible that your 12-year-old son might look up and say, I am not the center of the universe. Not in a life-changing way, but in a slight incremental way. Do you think he might be confronted with the idea that he is not the center of the universe? Now, when you read Shakespeare's Hamlet, one of the lessons that you can learn by following Hamlet's trajectory is that man is not the center of the universe. Hamlet comes up against this several times in the course of the play and has some profound observations about this theme. And they are very beautiful and very deep and very Elizabethan and gorgeous. And to a 12-year-old, they're not super accessible. And to an 18-year-old, they're not super accessible. But they're the same as the observations that Johnny makes and that we make when we read The Biggest Bear. So what I would encourage you to do is read books like this and make notes of what their themes are. Make notes of the fact that here's a great illustration of coming of age, going from boyhood and its self-centeredness to manhood and its maturity in a nice, accessible format. Make a note of it so that when it comes around again later on, your students will already have encountered it once. And they will say in the middle of Shakespeare, hey, this is just like the biggest bear. <laughs> and then you'll know you've won. Because you'll know that for many years now, you've been giving them the kind of education that they need. I appreciate your attention. Be happy to take questions or discussion on this general idea. Anybody have any thoughts? Yes, sir. <gasps> How do you know that? Oh, yeah. Sometimes when I'm telling this story, I do stop and give a little personal anecdote. I wasn't going to do it today, but okay. Um, we live in a very rural area in northeast Washington, as I mentioned, and we moved out there to get away from crime, um, which was effective and successful, but we did not get away from wildlife. And the, I live out in the country on top of a hill. It's a long way from everywhere. It's 19 miles, actually, from a town of 5,000 people. So I'm in the, in the sticks for sure. It's great. I love it. Beautiful views, quiet, gorgeous. But you've got to deal with your own garbage. There's no garbage service. And it's the one thing I hate about living in the country. You've got to go to the dump and, and you've got to go often or else it just runs away with you. 
So in the first year I was living there, we never went to the dump because we're, there's a bunch of other stuff going on and we just never could get to it. So there's always this giant pile of garbage. And we got on the bear's route. <laughs> and what a bear will do, if you don't live in the country, is he will find out where the good garbage is and he will make a circuit. And he'll just hit the good garbage every so often. And he actually knows that if you wait two days, the garbage is even tastier than it was. So he comes every two days or three days to the route. And so he would come and scatter garbage all over the front yard. And we'd come out and say, ugh. And instead of going to the dump, we'd just pile it up in the pile again and go back inside. <laughs> so three days later, he'd come around again. <sighs> scatter garbage all over the front yard. And I'd go, oh, the dang bear. Pile it up in the house, by the house and go back inside. So finally, one day, I said, I've had enough of this. I have touched this garbage nine times. I only want to touch my garbage once. You know what I'm saying? So finally, I said, all right, that does it. I'm going to the dump. So we borrowed a truck. I didn't have a truck. And we borrowed a truck and went to the dump and took all the garbage away and forgot to tell the bear. And so the next time it was time for the bear to do his appointed rounds, he came to our house and found no garbage. And he thought, well, that's funny. It was right where I left it. And so he went looking for the garbage and he smelled the garbage in my kitchen. This is middle of the night, of course. They don't work by day. Smelled the garbage in my kitchen, went to the side of my house, took his little bear claws and up to the window sash, climbed into my kitchen and went through my kitchen garbage. Had a fine old dime in my kitchen garbage. In the middle of the night while we were all asleep, I woke up in the morning, came down to get a cup of coffee and I saw garbage all over the kitchen floor. And I said, those dang kids. <laughs> it's amazing how at times like that, your true colors just shine right through. Those dang kids are going to beat them all within an inch of their lives. And then I looked at the counter or the, the cabinet where the garbage was, and there was three parallel claw marks right down the front of my cabinet. And I went, <gasps> bear, everybody upstairs. And everybody went upstairs and dived under their beds. <coughs> and I grabbed... I grabbed a gun and I went through the house with a rifle in my underwear looking for this bear. I looked like Elmer Fudd. And then I realized a rifle inside the house is a terrible idea. Plus, I'm too scared to even aim it. This is ridiculous. So I put the rifle down and I went upstairs and got under the bed with my wife. It turns out, after I called the, the Department of Natural Resources and they came and trapped it, it turns out that the bear, we, we saw the footprints later, had gone through the kitchen, gone over to our picture window and put his hands up on the window and looked out at the view and said, nice view. <laughs> Walked around the, the, the downstairs, put his feet on the bottom step going up to our bedrooms and then turned around and found his way out the window he had come in. Now, I don't know if you know much about this, but that is very rare. It's more likely that the bear gets lost in the house and loses his mind and gets agitated and tears the place apart. So we very well could have had an insane bear in our house, and instead the bear just left out the window he came in. And I didn't have to fire a rifle inside, which would have been really stupid. <laughs> so anyway, I usually tell that story because it's a little local color, and, and sometimes somebody asks me when I read this story, um, are, isn't this story teaching a bad message about feeding bears? And then I always say, no, 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 don't worry. That's not my perspective. And then I tell that story and we're all clear. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yeah. 
Oh. <laughs> Let me, let me make sure that nobody else has a question about the, about the uh, content of the talk, and then I'd be happy to. Over here and then there. Um, the talk is gilding a little. So from here, I'm kind of <coughs> Yeah, that's what I want to say. Yes, and always be on the lookout. By the way, the comment was, what you're saying is just have fun with building this list. Read books you enjoy, enjoy the whole process, and then build in difficulty and depth as you go along. And all the time, always be on the lookout for a lesson, a theme in the story, with which you can confront your student with his humanity, with his humanness. Yes, we have, we have a book list in the back of our uh, uh, basic teacher training seminar, which is called Teaching the Classics, and it do, what it does is it teaches you to lead a discussion like the one I've led today. It takes you step by step through exactly how to do it so that you can take any book in the world and lead a good discussion on it. In the back of the manual for that seminar is an annotated book list of books that Missy and I really enjoy and that would be wonderful for this kind of discussion. It goes up from you know picture books right on up through high school. The, yeah, the, the seminar is called Teaching the Classics. It's a DVD training seminar. I'm the teacher, so I'm standing up doing just what I'm doing today to a group of moms and dads saying, here's how you teach literature step by step. Uh, booth 1206. 1206. Yes, ma'am, and then over here. I have an idea. So that we can get to everybody's questions, will you stand at the door while people are filing out and they can tell you on their way out their favorite book? Awesome. Over here. Yeah, it's a good question. How do you tell the, between the good ones and the bad ones? How do you put a gate up so that not so the books that you don't like are coming into your house and you're, you don't have any control over it? The only way really to do that is to be careful and say, the ones I'm uncertain about, I'm going to read too. And we're going to talk through them. I don't think there's any danger in having your students read whatever book they want, as long as there's a discussion afterwards in a questionable case where you can be in charge where you can lead a discussion. You can say, what does the Andrews family think about some of the issues in this book? And let's have a discussion about that. Now, obviously, that's a sticky uh, situation and every family is different. So my advice to you would be, you have to be a little vigilant because you are the gatekeeper. So it's going to be work on your part, but man, it's worth it. The kind of conversations you can have, if, even as the result of reading a book that you're not too happy with, can be so worth the effort. Yes, ma'am. Do you like the Newman Calcutt and Newberry? Do you like that as a starting point for a book list? Or do you. It seems like now it's more politically correct um, in these more recent years. Yeah, I think so. They've been given the Caldecott Medal and the Newberry Medal for a long time, and you can get some. That's a great place to start. As a thumbnail sketch of where you start for the good book list, 
the Newberry Medal and the Caldecott Medal are fabulous. We use them all the time. And even the most, more recent ones are, are well written and if, if there's you know, political content, you can contextualize that out in a discussion and they're still worth it. I do it all the time. Yes, ma'am, I'm right back to you. Yeah. 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 It's good to have, as you get more experienced in reading and teaching your kids to read, it's good to have a set of principles that characterize your own family. You say, this is what we approve of in our family. And I would encourage you to let that develop with your own experience. Um, you know, obviously we get help from people that know more than we do and that have been down the road, but, but letting a, a family reading ethos develop naturally in your own family is a wonderful thing because your family is different than the family down the road and we you know we have a particular Andrews bent on how we look at the world of books and that's developed over many years and it's a good thing so I want you guys to develop your own version of that yes sir uh, for example American Library Association is ideologically opposed to the values of most people I suspect in the room uh, you're saying that Newberry and Caldecott are not no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that the, the Newberry titles that I've used are fabulous books for the most part. Carry on, Mr. Bowditch, for example. Um, the Bronze Bow. Uh, the, the list of titles that I, would, that I use every day goes on and on from that list. And the Caldecotts are the same way. They're, they're just really, historically, have been really high-quality stuff. But everybody's got a different ideology, right? And that comes through in, in, in all kinds of decisions. So you've got to be alive to that as well. Mm. Because the same question is asked Yeah. 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 Any other questions? Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would actually call that not even a, uh, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily even stop and say, this is a Christian theme. I would just say, hey, look, manhood is laying down your life for your friends. Greater love has no man than this, but that he lay down his life for his friends. Yeah, exactly. Great stuff. Hey, thanks for coming, guys. That was fun. I'll be in the exhibit hall if you want to talk later. <laughs>